welcome to the Black Lawyers Matter podcast, providing you with invaluable pieces of career wisdom, brought to you by the Stephen James Partnership and Black Lawyers Matter. I'm your host, Samuel Clegg. Across the podcast, I'll be speaking to a host of esteemed leaders, thinkers, and inspiring figures from within the legal profession to understand why diversity is important to their organization and how they've excelled throughout their careers. Through these inspirational and educational conversations, we will be equipping you with the skills, knowledge and acumen necessary to not only navigate the legal landscape, but to thrive within it. Good afternoon and welcome to the Black Lawyers Matter podcast. Today, delighted to be joined by Leslie Smug, who is the General Counsel of Gordon Brothers, the Global Advisory Restructuring and Insolvency Firm. Leslie, pleasure to have you on board today. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. I'm uh, coming to you live from Austin, Texas, where I'm about to attend a conference. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for uh, managing to to fit us into your very busy schedule. Uh, we really do appreciate that. And it's brilliant to have the opportunity to, to have a chat with you about a number of um, really important and also interesting topics. So I guess if we go to maybe the start of, of your legal career, Leslie, what was it about law or the legal profession that attracted you and, and made you want to go in and uh, I guess, start your career in the way that you did? Um, well, Sam, I think I should be honest and say, because it's important when I talk about my career journey, um, it, it's important to note that I never thought that my choice of this as a career was intentional. Um, I felt like it was a logical next step. I'm one of those people who, um, you know, growing up, people said, you should be a lawyer um, for a variety of reasons. It's a compliment, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Just sort of kind of forced upon you. And, and so, um, you know, you think, well, that kind of makes sense. And you've grown up that way. And then um, sort of went to law school after university and um, made the choice to go into law. I should mention too that it was personally for me a challenging time in my life. Um, my father had been sick for probably about 10 years at that time and, and definitely was not progressing um, and was getting worse. And so when I was going from university to law school, that was sort of lurking in the background. And, and I think that that's another reason why my choices weren't laid out clearly for me. I think that they were muddled a little bit about by what was going on in my personal life yeah and if you don't mind me asking Leslie how, how did you juggle those two dynamics I suppose with a lot going on in your family life but then also a lot going on in your kind of developing professional life yeah I mean it was very challenging looking back on it um and I think for me at that time so you know we're going back 20 over 25 years for me I was not the kind of person that shared that. And so, you know, I mentioned that it was lurking in the background and it really was lurking in the background. I had sort of the life that I was leading publicly. I was going to school. I was um, in law school. I was in my um, study groups um, going through the motions, but, but really was having a lot going on in the background. And so I would go to my classes in my first year of law school and then um, either go home or go to the hospital 
and sit with my dad and then go back to law school. And I, looking back on it, I'm, I'm surprised that a lot of people didn't really know that that was going on. Um, I think I thought that I was sharing more than I was, but I, but I really wasn't. So yeah, it was, it was definitely a challenging time in my life. Um, I would say, but informed the rest of my, uh, of my adult career and, and journey, I would say. Yeah. Okay. And I suppose if we move on to when you were kind of training to, to become a, a lawyer, what, what did that look like for you? And I suppose the second bit is at, at that time, did you have a plan of where you wanted to get to? Because I know you said that the start of your career wasn't necessarily intentional in becoming a lawyer. Um, but as you progressed, did it become more intentional for you? When I went to law school, and you know, in the US, it's sort of a double you know, you go to your undergraduate and then you go to graduate school. And so you sort of choose that separately. And um, when I was doing that, my thought was that I would go into nonprofit work. Um, I had a fellowship during law school um, and I was focusing initially on homeless um, activism and homeless rights. And I had a fellowship during my second summer of law school to do that. Um, and do homeless rights advocacy, which was very rewarding. Um, before then, um, I also, the first summer after law school, I thought, let me just try and do something very different. I had studied abroad during university in Spain. And so I went back and worked um, as a summer associate in a law firm in Madrid. Um, so that was sort of an interesting experience. And I wanted to sort of collect interesting experience in law schools which um, in the U.S. is not the traditional path. It certainly wasn't then all those years ago. It was you go to law school, likely you're going to um, aspire to be in a law firm when you get out of law school. And so you spend your summers working either in that same law firm or in a different law firm. Um, and I didn't want to do that. That just felt to me like um, a path that I really wasn't ready to um, settle on. So I did those two things um, and I was interested in nonprofit work going in. And for me, that changed when I needed to get a job after law school and I did get a job at a law firm and I ended up at first doing product liability defense work. Um, I had not aspired to be a litigator, but there I was. I was interested in learning, but it was a lot of rote sort of task related work, you know, deposition digests. And while the atmosphere was fun, you know, it, it definitely wasn't something that I wanted for my career. Um, I had the benefit of being pulled in to do some work for the newer bankruptcy and restructuring group um, at my law firm at the time. They were, uh, they came over from a, a different large firm. There were about four of them. They had a number of matters that they're working on, uh, of course, a number of clients that they brought with them, but they didn't have enough junior staff. And so I was fortunate enough to be brought in um, to do that work when they were understaffed and really needed help. So for a first year lawyer, I really got my hands on a lot more than I would have. Um, so I became in, in, that, you know, just sort of fell into being a bankruptcy and restructuring lawyer. Um, 
And my oldest brother, 10 years older than me himself, had also fallen into being a bankruptcy and restructuring lawyer. Um, he had a what we call in the U.S. a liberal arts background, which is what I had as well. I majored in philosophy in university. Um, I did not take any business courses. Um, he did not either. But 10 years on, he said, you know what? I think that you would really enjoy this. It's a very diverse area of the law. You know, it's it's brief writing. It's you get to know companies from the inside and operations. Um, it's finance. It's a little bit of litigation as well. Um, and all those things are just make it a really exciting place to be. And I said, you know what? OK, I don't really believe you, but I'm going to try this. And I did. I really enjoyed it. And so from there, working with that group that came to my firm, I did that for about a year, 10 months to a year, and then sort of said to myself, okay, now I'm a bankruptcy and restructuring lawyer. And then I went um, to become a full bankruptcy and restructuring associate at a firm across the street. Um, and that's how it began for me. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I think one of the one of the big things for me is on having a bit more of an understanding into people's careers, motivations for, uh, for what they wanted to achieve and hearing that almost back. Um, and lots of things that define successful people and people in senior positions it often comes back to maybe something that someone once said or a setback that they had and uh, i'm curious from your perspective leslie to to understand kind of a, a career low light that you may have had and how you took that on board and how you used that to kind of i guess turn it into a positive so I will say one thing. So again, you know, I'm talking about my career journey and we're still in the early stages where, you know, I was going to go in this direction. I ended up going in this direction. Once that decision was made, it still wasn't easy for me because again, I thought, you know, in the back of my mind, this wasn't something that I sat down, mapped out and chose. I fell into it. Over the course of the next couple of decades, I did sort of realize that that's okay. You don't necessarily have to be intentional about your career for it to be your career. And so if we jump ahead, probably 15 years, um, let me say as well, I knew going into law firm, uh, a career as a law firm lawyer, that that was going to be limited for me. That was not a business model that resonated for me. Um, in the U.S., you typically, in order to go in-house to a company, um, you need at least five years of external law firm practice. Um, law departments in companies are not really set up well to train you like law firms do. Um, so I'm grateful for that training. I learned a ton in a law firm, but I knew sort of at the five-year mark, I was going to want to go in-house somewhere. And so, you know, skipping ahead, that's what I did. And I became an in-house lawyer, fit very well. I really enjoyed being part of the team that I was advising, basically advising my coworkers, if you boil it down. Um, I really enjoyed it. And then I realized, you know, I feel like I my next step is going to be not being an individual contributor transactional lawyer in-house, but moving up in the ranks of management. And while to most that would sound really exciting, again, for me, it was sort of a crossroads, like, gosh, do I really want to do that? Do I want to be 
a manager? Do I want to be a general counsel? Do I want to be a specialist? Because up until then, I'd bounced around from practice area to practice area. Once I went in-house um, at the five-year mark, um, I left bankruptcy and restructuring and sort of did whatever. Um, I became a, an asset um, asset-based finance lawyer focusing on um, marine vessels at first, and then I did M&A, um, then I did general commercial. I did sort of ran the gamut, and I definitely wasn't a specialist. And so for me, it kind of gave me a little bit of an identity crisis, I'd say 15 years down the road, you know, looking back and, and realizing I didn't choose this. I should really figure out if this is the right path for me or if there is a better path. And to me, that better path could have been anything. I could have been a landscape architect. I could have been an artist, right? I mean, there's always that part of you that you feel like uh, the, the path not taken, right? You know, all of a sudden I'm a lawyer and this is who I am, but is it who I am? So through a mentee, actually, I became uh, aware of this sort of career coach, but a very unusual kind of career coach who um, was also a psychologist. And he didn't focus as much on helping you through the day to day, but he helped you focus on when you're at a pivot point in your life or career, sort of where you should be going. And he did that work for people who were 18 years old, and he did that work for people who um, were on the verge of retirement and trying to figure out what's the next chapter. Um, is it being idle or is it being, you know, pursuing my dream in some other direction? Um, and so I went to him and it was a very intense process, very analytical, all kinds of personality tests and conversations. And um, I'll be honest with you, my husband was a little nervous that I was going to come away from it and and sort of abandon my, my, my law career and go back to school for something completely different and start over. Yeah, be like a landscape artist. <laughs> Precisely, <or something> <laughs> yes. Um, but what ended up happening was we sat down for my final review um, and, and I was presented with a, like a 20 page report. So it was very comprehensive. And um, this career coach who's since retired, his name is John. John said to me, I have to tell you, you're in the exact right career for your skill set, your aptitude, your capabilities. This is where you should be exactly in the job that you have and on the path that you're on. And instead of that being unsettling, it actually was the most profound moment, I think, in my career, because it just said it didn't matter that you weren't intentional about choosing this, because it chose you. And you're in the right career for yourself. But the thing that kind of brought it together for me and changed uh, my path after that was that he said, you know, you don't have to just be um, this type of lawyer at work that doesn't bring in all of the different aspects of your life and your interest. You can bring all of those things together in a very fulfilling way. Um, and some of the things that I was very interested in was um, organizational design, um, 
interested in mentoring, to be honest with you, to um, mentoring all different types of people beyond lawyers and really creating a fun, safe workspace for, um, for everyone. And so sort of just, you know, him casting his magic wand on me turned a career low light, to be honest with you, because it really was a crisis for me uh, into sort of a sigh, um, a chance to pause and then really embrace um, the rest of my career. And so that was at this point over 10 years ago. And I realized that, you know, being a general counsel, being a generalist is um, perfect for me. I, I don't need to be an expert. I need to be the person that sort of understands what's going on enough to pull in the experts. Right. And well, thank you for sharing that, first of all. And I guess moving on to kind of the the last 10 year or so period of your career, what would you say, uh, if you could choose one as kind of your best highlight from that period in your career? So for me, in the last 10, so the last 10 years for me have been general cow. That was when I came into the general counsel role um, for Caterpillar Financial. And it was a highlight for me, certainly, because I was in a leadership position among people with whom I started my career. So I, I became the leader of some of my peers. Uh, and in fact, um, one or two of my my bosses, my original bosses. And um, it definitely was a challenge. It was a challenge to find the right tone to be kind and collegial, but also be the leader that I needed to be. And it was wonderful. I think at that point, I realized that I had the opportunity to really influence other people's paths, to influence their satisfaction as lawyers at the organization where I worked and was leading. Um, And so I, I think, you know, I, I'm definitely on the back end of my career. I'm, I'm not sort of giving it up yet, but I'm definitely not in my 20s. And I think that there is a point where you realize that the focus is now away from you and what's going to become of your career um, and focusing on being of service to others. And I don't want to pretend to be too altruistic, but I do think that it does change things when you turn the focus from being inward to outward and you realize that you can get so much satisfaction. And in fact, that the next number of years of your career will be in getting satisfaction from watching other people grow and develop and thrive. And, you know, knowing that you had a hand in doing that surely, but also just seeing people be happy and reaching their full potential. So, so that's very specifically a highlight. Thank you. And I suppose following on from that and being of service to others, as you mentioned, it's, it's been a pleasure working with you and the legal team at Gordon Brothers with regards to our, our own programme, which is designed to promote uh, black lawyers uh, in their careers through, in particular, with a real focus on mentorship. And, and that's something that certainly is of service to a huge amount of people. Um, it'd be great to understand where your 
uh, I suppose, want to be involved in a programme like this comes from and, and why diversity, equity and inclusion is important for you, Leslie? Yeah, Sam. So um, we have a very interesting legal department. And it is, even, even though I've had um, legal departments before that I oversaw that were larger than this one, much larger, um, there's something very different about this team in that we all built it together. And, and I mean that sincerely. So we have nine, at this point in time, we have nine individuals who are part of our in-house corporate legal department. Um, we now have two lawyers in London and a paralegal. We have three lawyers, including myself, and two paralegals and an assistant in Boston. And we're, we like to say that we're small but mighty. But we are also, we feel, you know, the, the word intention comes back here. We are being very intentional about who joins our team. We're being very intentional about how we work as a team. And so it's really wonderful. I wouldn't say that we're all the same. We're certainly very different as individuals, but in terms of our common purpose, I think that we're very well aligned. And so being that kind of really close team, we listen to each other. Um, and although I'm the leader of the team, we have some very smart, very purposeful, passionate individuals on the team. And so, you know, Ben Olashola, who is our lead of our international group based in London, you know, after I'd say about a year, Ben said, you know, this is really important to me um, as someone of mixed race um, to make sure that we pursue diversity and inclusion. We talked about it early on. And the first time we talked about what we could do as a small team, we decided that we'll start small. And in our outside counsel guidelines, we will make sure it will, in the guidelines and then in practice, we'll make sure that the junior people, the junior partners and associates are really getting deal credit for the matters that we bring to them. So we don't wanna just see the senior partner taking credit. We wanna make sure and we will advocate for the other folks who have had a big role in doing work for us to get that credit, which is really important for profit sharing. It's also important in the earlier stages for making it to partner. Um, and so we realized then that you could, in very small ways, have a big influence. And then at our most recent offsite, and and you know, in the probably six months leading up to it, Ben has been. Um, and I do want to acknowledge Ben because he's been the driving force to sort of light a fire under us and say, we need to do more. And I think we all came together and said, okay, let's do it. I think we're ready. And so in the U.S., um, we plan to recognize firms who have signed on to the Mansfield rule. And then in England um, and perhaps in Europe as well, um, recognize firms who also have signed on to similar initiatives um, regarding diversity. So looking to our law firms, looking to sort of an independent um, organization to certify um, firms that we're working with, because we are a small team, we realized that we didn't want to bite off more that we can, than we can chew and you know, don't necessarily have the resources to separately assess whether 
firms are compliant. And so looking to these outs these external objective standards um, to be able to do that. So that we're doing that in the UK, we're doing it in the US. Um, our team itself is um, primarily female. Um, we have diversity of color. We have diversity of ethnicity. Um, most importantly, I think we have diversity of thought, which um, is an important thing because you can check the box on all the different ways that we are different from each other. Um, but if you don't invite people to be empowered and have a seat at the table and, and really speak their mind, then you know, you're not really achieving the goal. Absolutely. And I'd also like to, to take this moment to acknowledge Ben for all of his hard work with, um, I guess, setting setting this up and helping to drive forwards a lot of the things that we've been collaborating on, uh, which has been an absolute pleasure uh, to work with Ben and you. So, yeah, thank you, Ben. Um, hopefully you're listening somewhere. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I guess that probably leads on rather nicely to the mentoring side of things. So uh, you, you and your team have been excellent in moving things forward quickly because we signed up with lots of law firms and legal departments and by and large, the support has been very forthcoming and quick to transition from, I suppose, theory into to action. Uh, but there have, have been some legal departments and firms where it hasn't really, that the words haven't necessarily been congruent with their actions. And we've had a great meeting and we've signed them up and they've allocated five or 10 mentors, but then for whatever reason, it hasn't necessarily happened. Whereas with Gordon Brothers, it's been immediate. And the firm was one of the first to, uh, and I know from the conversations that I had with Ben uh, towards the back end of last year, was that he wanted to be involved first and then he wanted to sign up other people from Golden Brothers and then he wanted to kind of send the message out to his network, which absolute credit to Ben. He's followed through on all of those things very quickly and, and professionally. So that that's one of the things that I've really, really enjoyed, um, not just with Golden Brothers, but with all of the firms and departments that we've been fortunate to work with because ultimately without their support and, and your support, as in the support of your teammates and colleagues we, we we can't run these programs so it's excellent in that regard um one of the big things for us is is around the mentoring idea in that there's a huge amount of things i think go into well, how can we positively impact legal representation of say black people within the profession and i don't think that there's one particular way and as you rightly mentioned there are lots of different ways that senior decision makers and often GCs and heads of legal can have a bit more sway in influencing whether it's behaviors whether it's work patterns whether it's the the type of people that are working on specific projects or deals or or general work um, potentially quicker than people like me that are not uh, the purchasers of legal services put it that way so one of the things that we've looked at through the mentoring piece is it's designed to be a two-way process and at the moment our version is that we have people that are not qualified lawyers so people that might be 18 plus people that are kind of undergrads postgrads sometimes mature students but people that aren't yet working or looking or training as lawyers and they get paired with mentors typically 
lawyers and legal professionals that want to make a difference. And so at that stage, the individual mentees are that they haven't qualified. And I guess I wanted to tie that in, Leslie, and say, from, from in your opinion, when do you think is the best time to receive mentorship, if, if there is a best time and why? I think that's such an interesting question. And, um, you know, I told you a little bit about how I came to be in the law for a reason, because I think it is relevant and it's something that drives me to be a mentor to people at that stage in their life as well, who kind of feel like you need to be born with some sort of calling (laughs) to become a lawyer. Um, You need to have some sort of background or um, network, um, which is helpful, no doubt about it. It's always helpful to have someone in your life who you know who's a lawyer or who knows lawyers and can put you in touch with people. But if you don't have that too, I I think I I like speaking to people um, at that stage of their lives because oftentimes their image of what the law, the practice of law is like has been formed by movies and, and television. And, um, you know, I like to say that nobody as of yet has made um, a TV series about corporate lawyers, corporate in-house lawyers. I think that probably it would just be sort of filming people at their desks and on the phone a lot of the time. Um, and so it's really important to understand what what your life is like when that's you know, when you practice law, you're not, oh, it's not always attractive. It's not always sexy. It's not always exciting. There's a lot of administrative work that you have to do. Um, Certainly, if you're in a law firm, you're billing your time. So you have to keep recording your time. There are a lot of things that you do for other people. Um, And you also, you know, something that I think is different now than when I came up is you need to be patient. Um, you need to be patient with yourself um, when you emerge with your degree and you start practicing. I think you very quickly realize that there's a lot more to it than just the academic part of the learning. There's how do you move in the workplace? How do you interact with your clients? How do you give advice um, to people who, you know, quite frankly, at this point are not picking up a full memo that's 15 pages and sitting and reading it. Nobody has time for that anymore. You know, people, if you can't put it on your phone while they're traveling, um, they're just not going to read it. So there are all these nuances that are really important and it's, you know, about communication and, and all of that as well. So, um, you know, I, I try and help people who are trying, who are making that choice and give them a dose of reality. In fact, all of us do. And we've had some, interns, some summer interns who were both in university and thinking that they definitely wanted to go to law school or that, you know, at the beginning of their law school career, come in and work for us in the summertime, which, you know, wasn't done probably 25 years ago. Nobody went in-house to do their summer training. Um, Everybody solely went to law firms. And I think that if you have the ability to do that, you have the flexibility to do that, it's... um, can can be very enlightening because it gives you a glimpse of um, the other paths that you can take. And it's by no means the last, you know, it's not just two paths in-house or law firm. They're more than that. But I think it just maybe gives you a dose of reality 
Um, so back to your question though, about when is good to have a mentor, I would say at any stage, it's really important, including the stage where I am now. Um, you know, many people talk about having your own personal board of directors and advisors that you can turn to. Um, even now, I have um, friends who are executives, both within the law and outside, um, and senior people in the law as well. And I think it's really important to bounce ideas off of them. Um, I'm a member of a network called um, Women's um, GC Network. It's solely online, um, and occasionally there are meetups, but um, there are about a thousand female general counsels who are part of this organization and we can ask each other questions and it's very quick, it's empowering, um, you bounce ideas off of each other. The scope is very wide and varied um, and I find it incredibly useful. So there, I think that you never get to a point where you know everything. Um, I feel that very strongly um, and, and I think that you always have to learn. You have to seek out advice and learn from that advice. Um, so, you know, I've talked about early in your career, even before you've decided that this is going to be your career, really important to get a very realistic sense of what um, it's like to practice law. Um, and, you know, you can also explore different things, maybe getting a law degree, but not practicing law. Um, I think that could, a, a legal education is a very useful education because it changes the way that you think, it changes the way that you approach issues um, and analyze the issues and reach conclusions, um, just at the very least. Um, so I'll say this too, when I, I described how I've kind of fell in with the group, the bankruptcy group in the first firm where I was, and then I moved to being an associate in the bankruptcy group of another firm. When I made that second move, it definitely um, was scary. And I felt, um, I questioned myself a lot. I questioned whether I understood what was going on, whether I knew enough, whether I was good enough. I was definitely that inner critic in my head was screaming really loudly at the time. Um, a great mentor at that stage was my older brother that I described had been a bankruptcy lawyer. And I remember, you know, having some hushed telephone conversations with him where I, where I let him know how, um, you know, the crisis of confidence that I was having. And he was extremely helpful because he knew me. He was extremely helpful in reminding me about all of the achievements and, and qualities that I had that um, he thought made it clear that I would be successful. And it's important to, you know, find a balance of, find some professional mentors, but also find some personal mentors who you can open up with and be very vulnerable because it's not just, you know, you get the degree and you get the job and you have questions about, you know, should I take this role or or that role. I think there are other questions about how does this fit you as a person? And, you know, do you want to be a litigator? Maybe you've tried it and then you feel like that's very scary. And I don't like standing up and having questions thrown at me impromptu in a courtroom full of people. That's fair. 
Um, and I think you need to surround yourself with people um, with whom you can show your vulnerability, you know, and, and be confident that they will help you. They might not always tell you what you want to hear, but they mm-hmm. will be a sounding board. And I think it's really important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I certainly agree with that. And I think the bit that you touched on around that, the vulnerability piece is something that for all the ch- the change that's happened in the world over the last couple of years, I think lots of people seem to feel more confident opening up about things, particularly when it relates to the workplace or their career. And there's lots of fantastic conversations that have been had around kind of mental health and well-being and confidence or imposter syndrome. And I, I think it's almost a chronology in that lots of people kind of enter a certain career or a legal career in this instance and almost think that they, they have to either know everything or feel as though they have to pretend that they know everything regardless of if they do or not and it's it's often I certainly felt at the start of, of my legal education um, in that it felt hard to kind of open up and, and be vulnerable and it felt hard to be able to to say well I'm not sure here or I don't necessarily get that but I think having that ability to be vulnerable is that, that is what can lead to kind of real growth and also that confidence if you've got a mentor there that you know you can trust and and has your back that that can be a safe space to have those types of of back and forths and they might not say the answers you said that you'd like them to say they might not say the easier thing to do but if you trust them enough you you'll know that they'll have the right thing to say for you even if you don't think it at the time correct you know i'm i'm remembering a person who ended up being um i'll call it a mentee but more mentee friend at the last company at which I worked, he approached me after I was speaking on a panel and something that I said had resonated with him. And he, um, I had known him, he was in the accounting group and a, a black man in a company that I would say, you know, black men were in the minority for sure, certainly in that office. And he approached me and I could just see in the way that he was reaching out to me, that there was something going on and he really needed to speak. He was trying not to, but he really needed to. And and when we got together to have conversations, um, I give him so much credit. He opened up and he was saying that he was at a real crossroads because he was in a position of authority. He was going to gain more responsibility, Uh, but he had just had his first child. And for him, it, it sort of his blackness became more relevant to him, if that makes sense. And in the workplace, he started recognizing all of the ways that he felt like he had to leave that behind when he left home to go to work during the day. And, you know, was talking to me about how that how much time he spent as a newer manager trying to hold himself back so that he appeared very calm, that he appeared docile and not angry. And so he didn't fit into any of the stereotypes of the angry black man. But ultimately, also, he was just feeling very alone in all of that. And I mean, certainly I can't relate to that specifically. I can sympathize, but I can't empathize. 
and you know what I saw on his face was just utter exhaustion you know it was just too much to try and hold yourself back like that and not be who you are while you're trying to grow yourself as a professional and so just having that conversation was really helpful for him certainly for me it was very helpful um, to hear that perspective and I knew he, the other thing that for him was challenging is he was a, a black man in America, but he also hailed from the Caribbean. So he didn't feel even among the black community where we lived, he didn't feel like he belonged there. So he was just having trouble finding anyone to, um, you know, that, that felt like they understood. So I did know a man who is a senior partner in a law firm um, who also was a black Caribbean man and put them together. And um, it was really a, a good match, a very good match for him because he began to see, well, he could certainly talk to someone who, who could understand the experience that he was talking about and who could help him better than I could certainly with the tools to, to overcome it, I don't know. I don't know if it's fair to say overcome it because maybe you never do or will. But to just find some sort of peace in himself um, at work and be able to, you know, I mentioned that he had just had a child. Be able to stand tall um, in front of his child and say, you know, I'm bringing my whole self to work and to what I do. I'm not hiding who I am to make other people feel better. And it was such a profound, I think about it all the time. I, I do. I think about when I look around a table, you know, how is that person feeling at that moment? What is their experience and how is it different than mine? Um, and, and what kind of machinations are going on in their brain? Sometimes you can see it in a person when they're sitting a certain way and you can see that they're not being themselves but um, you, you can't often see what's going on in their heads. But that gave me a little bit of insight that, you know, it's not like everybody comes to the table just because you've invited them there. Not everybody comes to the table in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a really powerful uh, visual thing for me is, is seeing black lawyers at the top of their game, seeing black lawyers who are decision makers, general counsels, heads of managing partners, senior partners, because I see, and from lots of conversations that I have as part of my, my day job, is around a lot of the, the representation at the very highest levels. Because I don't think it's a case of one thing can all of a sudden solve everything. I think it has to, have a, as I've alluded to earlier, needs to be very much a joined up approach at all levels. Thinking with regards to grassroots programs through to associate programs through to kind of all. How do people get from associate to managing associate, for example, or managing associate to counsel or partner? And then at partner, how do you go from the salaried partner level to equity, to the top of the equity uh, system? How do you get to managing partner level? And often, if there isn't that representation at lots of levels, but in particular at the highest levels, it can be quite hard to, to think, well, that could be me if there isn't someone that that looks like you and isn't someone that has the same type of background you don't necessarily have that sense of, of belonging as you talked about so yeah it's a fascinating story i appreciate you you sharing it with me it's something that i think is 
unfortunately not uncommon. Uh, it's something I hear a huge amount of uh, from lots of people uh, and lots of very hardworking and, and committed people. But what one of the bits that I am super passionate on is is, is that is the kind of the holistic way in which organisations and people can actually do something about it and and often very quickly much quicker than they necessarily think and uh, i guess but my thought to you leslie because it's it is kind of a question so i'll frame it accordingly but my question to you is based on the data of which we know in the uk there's around two two to three percent because we're in between data collection years two to three percent of lawyers in the uk are black and from my research, the American Bar Association cited that around 5% of lawyers in the US are black. So we know that by default, the people in the highest decision-making kind of positions are probably not going to be black in legal departments and law firms. And often, or my question is, do you think that the people who aren't black but are in decision-making positions can make change around the i suppose black representation within law quicker than the black people who aren't necessarily in the highest ranking positions oh that's a big question um i'd like my answer to be yes i mean i i think you know there there i've had some very interesting conversations about this over the years at the leadership levels i can remember 10 years ago having one with someone who said you know, why don't we just let time it? I, I also believe in diversity and it will work itself out over time. Why do we need to force the issue? So that's basically what you're what you're talking about. And and I, you know, it, it I think it's fair to say that if you let that happen, we might not see in our lifetime the, the level of change that we need. So it is important to accelerate it. I think the biggest allies in that can be the people who want to see diversity for diversity's sake. So said differently, I like to describe myself, well, I don't like to describe myself this way. What I, f- I feel that I am a person who does not like to be pigeonholed, never have been. Um, I've never liked to, although, you know, from time to time, I've been part of different groups or associations or a sorority in college, or but it never fit well for me. I like to sort of run the gamut in terms of who I'm acquainted with and friends with. Um, and, and it's no different in the workplace. So I kind of feel like a workplace where people are all white and all male is not very attractive to me. Um, likewise, a workplace that is all women who look like me, that could be interesting. I've never worked in one of those, but that could be interesting, but I wouldn't want that either. I think I like to learn from other people. I like to see a workplace that is that, that has people from a bunch of different backgrounds who have are united by something common and that could be our purpose or our work ethic and we could be similar in a lot of ways but we have to be different as well um and i think to find the people who find that intrinsically valuable 
important and attractive, I think that's really where a lot of change can happen. But I, I think a lot of the programs like this one, I mean, um, mentoring is critical. It's absolutely critical to give people a hand up, but also a chance to fit in. Uh, and I hate to say it that way, but there are people who need to get the skills and the framework to move around in the professional space in a way that maybe is not, not innate to them. You know, shaking hands, how do I meet people? Um, how, do I, how do I sit at the conference table? How do I interject in a way that is not too aggressive or too quiet? How do I, you know, speak my mind or, you know, all of those things. I think it's the, really the small ways that we can help people starting from when they're at university and then all the way through, because, you know, like I said, it doesn't end. It doesn't end for anyone. I think it's really important to focus on not just checking the box and making sure that we have hired people or we have admitted people of color to um, law school, but it's to making sure that they stay and making sure that they have the tools to be successful um, all the way through. And I think it's, it's a matter of never forgetting that, if that makes sense. Yeah, very much so. I think it's spot on. And the, the bit that I would add to that would be ensuring that the decision makers, whether they're in-house or in private practice, are accountable for for everyone. And I suppose culturally, it's, it's really around the inclusion piece for me, often more than diversity, because diversity it is super broad and brilliantly broad. But it's the inclusion, it's the belonging, it's the, the kind of, as you mentioned, the retention piece of there is no point in hiring lots of different people from different backgrounds if culturally organisations are not going to open themselves up and say, well, we do have lots of different people coming from a range of backgrounds. So let's really make sure that these people do feel as though they belong. And it's genuine because I think it's very easy to tick a box at the surface layer that I unfortunately see quite a lot on kind of social media. You see it's a particular day or week and a logo gets changed and that's it for 364 days. So the, the real genuine sense of belonging isn't something that can be solved by tick box exercise. It is really often looking at and sometimes changing a culture of a department, a team or a business so that there's more of a sustainable way in which different people have access to, can enter, and then can stay. And ultimately, the, the club becomes more about everyone as opposed to what it might have used to be about. But again, that's something that I think we, we could have a whole different conversation on that, Leslie. It would, uh, we'd probably still be here in a year because it's so big. Um, but look, I, I, I think I've really enjoyed having this chat with you. And as I said, I appreciate you taking the time out, especially at a very early time uh, over in Austin. The last bit from me is around what one bit of advice you'd give to your younger self starting out as an aspiring lawyer. 
maybe not aspiring, but an unintentional lawyer, someone that doesn't necessarily initially know that they want to be a lawyer, what advice would you give to that version of yourself uh, and why? So to my younger self, I would say um, just relax. You don't have to be perfect. Um, And also, you're not alone. Everybody's learning. And you also are learning as well. You need to give yourself some grace. I think the younger people, listen, imposter syndrome is very real. And I, if, if I can close with this short story, I had a partner at my law firm um, who would call me, uh, call me into his office and say, bring your notepad. And inevitably, an hour and a half later, I'd end up with all sorts of notes scribbled on the notepad. Um, a sense of panic in my chest because he somehow, in the course of that, given me some sort of assignment. But not only could I not understand really the crux of what he was talking about, but I just didn't understand the assignment after I left his office. And I spent a lot of time thinking, oh no, oh no, oh no. And then, you know, probably a year after that, I realized that that's how he was with everyone. And so everybody would come out of his office and do the same thing and think, I don't know what he said. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And so I would have told my other, my, my younger self to, you know, check in with other people sooner and don't expect that it's, it's just you that doesn't understand or isn't getting it right or doesn't fit in whatever it is. It's probably a common experience and it could be the fault of someone else. So I think you just need to give yourself some grace um, because, you know, just because you get that degree doesn't mean that you know everything, uh, nor should should you be expected to. A career in the law is a constant journey. It's um, forever learning and relearning and expanding your knowledge base. Um, so, you know, that that's what I would say. Give yourself some grace. Give yourself some grace. Excellent. Well, Leslie, a real pleasure having you on uh, this show. Uh, as I said before, I appreciate you coming on, sharing your time, uh, sharing lots of really, really useful tips uh, and opening up about kind of your career and some of the ways in which other senior legal business um, professionals and people that have decision-making abilities can not only move things forward within their own organisations, but also the way in which they can kind of collaborate with their law firms with regards to widening up the profession and ultimately building towards a a more balanced profession for everyone and with with my particular focus on on black representation. So, yeah, Leslie, thank you very much. Loved having you and look forward to um, continuing to work with you. Thank you, Sam, and thank you for all that you've been doing. You've been opening our eyes and giving us a platform to, to do practically what what's been in our hearts for a while so thank you very much and we look forward to working with you as well not at all it's a real privilege um yeah absolute privilege on behalf of the people that that we represent that, that don't have a voice and i'm very fortunate to now have a form of voice through podcasts and through kind of my social media and so forth so that we have to uh, rely on the organizations and individuals 
that stand behind us and support what what we're about and giving a voice to to others so no i, I can't accept any uh, any credit leslie it's um it's all on behalf of the people that we as you mentioned at the start that we're in service of so yeah thank you for your kind words and um yeah wishing you a very good rest of the day because i know it's early and i've taken up far too much of your no time. it's a pleasure you as well thanks very Cheers. much leslie. take care Bye. thank you for listening to the black lawyers matter podcast if you enjoyed this episode please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others to find the show. For more information on how Black Lawyers Matter is helping to unlock opportunities for black professionals in law, head over to blacklawyersmatter.co.uk. For more information on how the Stephen James Partnership is addressing underrepresentation in the legal space, head over to thesjp.co.uk. Join us next time for more of the Black Lawyers Matter podcast.